Good evening. Good evening. My name is Trina Ramsey, and I am very excited to welcome you to the 11th episode of the Revolutionary Sisters of the Diaspora. We are a group of black and brown women who come together once a month to talk about issues of politics, race, social justice, self-care, self-love, and just plain old survival, and everything in between. And this evening we are talking about a very important topic, which is intersectionality and challenging white supremacy. So tonight we, we have a panel and our discussion is going to be led by none other than our very own Q, the lovable, huggable, angry black woman. And I'm going to turn it over to Q to kick off our discussion this evening. Good evening, everyone. I'm so glad you're here to have this conversation with us. Um, as Trina mentioned, my name is Q. I'm the lovable, huggable, angry black woman. And as I like to say, the revolution may not be televised, but it will be live streamed. And today, um, I think it is so prescient that we're talking about white supremacy and white feminism and intersectionality, because for the first time, really, I want to say since Anita Hill, issues of sexual harassment and the abuse of women at the hands of men, and even the abuse of men at the hands of men has really been censored, right? However, that censoring is kind of peculiar because we're really focusing on those that are exceptionally privileged being treated ill at the hands of, you know, white male patriarchy. So what does intersectionality mean? Intersectionality is recognizing that women, particularly women of color, are multifaceted, multifaceted, or as I like to say, we are walking, talking cultural collisions. Kimberly Crenshaw helped us recognize the fact that you cannot divorce women from their race. You can't divorce them from their religious identity, their, their ethnicity, their disability status, their sexual orientation. All of these different aspects of our lives, which do not fall under the normative standards of thinking of white males, are a part of who we are, right? So while we are women, and if we're a black woman or a brown woman, we have to keep in mind that when we are faced with oppressive behavior at the hands of others, that oppression manifests both because of our race and our gender or our religious affiliation, right? So... We see this quite closely, and this kind of abuse of women of color goes back for centuries, right? However, if we look at current events, we see that, for example, in the election on November 8th. Everyone likes to say that women gave Hillary their vote, but when you break it down according to race and ethnicity, she actually won 53% of the white white women vote, and it was women of color that gave them the majority of their votes. So people of Latino, Hispanic heritage, the women gave her 80% of their vote. Black women, ride or die for a Democratic Party that's often hostile towards us, gave her 93% of the vote, right? Or we have situations where men recognize that they can target women of color in a different kind of way. And this is not just because we have white supremacy on steroids inhabiting the White House. 
this predates that. Like I said, it goes back centuries. But if we just look at the last administration, we have, for example, Daniel Holcross in Oklahoma. He was a police officer who was, in fact, a man of color because he had a Native American heritage. He targeted abusing black women and sexually assaulting them because he realized that they would not be recognized and treated as whole human beings by the criminal justice system, to the point where he went into the hospital room of a woman who he arrested who was injured to demand sexual favors from her. We have Rachel Dozel, a woman who claimed to be down for confronting systems of oppression, but instead of actually doing the hard work of being a white woman who deals with racism and is willing to work on behalf of people in the NAACP, she decided to adopt the persona of a black woman and engage in caricature. She occasioned a modern-day blackface and then has the nerve to get mad at black people because we don't appreciate the fact that she donned our existence as if it was a costume, right? And then, like, if we just look at Sotomayor, when she, this incredible Supreme Court justice was going through her confirmation hearings, we had Senator Coburn from Oklahoma actually mimic I Love Lucy and say you have some splaining to do as if she was some cartoon character that he can make fun of. These are the ways the microaggressions against women of color occur. This is the fact that we can't just say it's all gender or all race, but both of them, right? And then in the post-Trump, Actually, I prefer not to call him by his real name because he doesn't recognize our names anyway. But we have, for example, attacking the mayor of San Juan, Puerto Rico, as they're going through a crisis because he feels like she's a nasty woman or whatever he calls her, right? Or we have Harvey Weinstein engaging in decades of abuse towards women. But the only woman he responds to and questions the validity of her attack is Lupita a black woman? Or we have Rep. Wilson being attacked by both the president and his chief of staff, calling her an empty vessel and a liar when, as we all know, black women come with receipts, and she actually had video to back up the veracity of her statements. So in thinking about all of this, right, all of the ways in which women of color are targeted, the ways that we are disbelieved, the ways that we are dehumanized, we have to deal with the fact that feminism isn't necessarily here for us. Right, that's why we call it in many ways black feminism. That's why we've coined the terms like black feminism and womanism because the traditional feminist movement has all been about exploiting our mental, physical, and emotional labor and then pretending that we don't exist. I pers but I am going to turn it over to our wonderful panelists. We have Nikichi and Maritza. Maritza and the first question that I want to bring up to you is this whole concept of faux sisterhood, right? Like, for example, we saw that at least for the November 8th election that white women would actually turn out for the one person that truly represents their demographic. They had their little pantsuits on, and then they chose not to show up. And they gave 53% of their vote to a man who explicitly was all about oppressing them. So this is complex. This is this is difficult to navigate, or for me it's not because I'm just like I'm done with you. But I would like to ask you all to talk a little bit about your experience in navigating the faux sisterhood 
white feminism and white supremacy. So I will start with Maritza. Maritza. Um, Well, I have a lot of thoughts, and that's a really big question. But I guess the first thing I think about is when I think about the Virginia results, and and we were talking a little bit about this before the show, but 53% of white women voted for Trump. And then if you look at the Virginia race, 51% of them still went Republican. And I looked at the results much deeply than that, and it seemed that it – it seemed that after marriage, white women like grew more conservative, and I wondered why that is. Um, but you know, the interesting thing about the whole election was, you know, I grew up in rural Nevada, and um, and it wasn't like a white community, but I would say it was like a white supremacist town. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of diversity. It was heavily Native American and Mexican, but we didn't have any of the leadership roles. But like I grew up like, you know, reading the local newspaper and the columns that the local newspaper published were like Bill O'Reilly and Coulter. The letters to the editor were literally hateful things that said like things like stop like tell those Mexicans to stop playing their clown music. Like things like that that were published in the newspaper. So when I remember actually when I was home when um when Donald Trump announced his candidacy for presidency, I had just finished law school, I was home for that summer. I was sitting in the living room with my two little sisters and my stepdad, who's my dad, he raised me. Um, who's a Mexican immigrant, right, and with my little sisters. And I remember he came down that escalator, and the first thing out of his mouth were, you know, Mexicans are rapists and drug dealers. And how heartbreaking that was, just like, you know. Wait, I'm sorry. I, I need to come back to that statement. So your stepfather, who is a Mexican immigrant, came down the stairs and said that Mexicans... No, no, no. Oh. Donald Trump. Bob. Donald okay. Trump. Yeah. Okay. I thought no, I misheard no, no, that, no, no. and that was so a whole Donald, different level. No, okay. I was home for that summer after after law school had descended. And I was home for that summer right before I moved out to D.C. permanently. Mm-hmm. And I was back in my hometown. So, like, I guess, like, the whole, like, background story, just to give you an idea of, like, where I okay. grew up and the hostility mm-hmm. that I grew up around. But, like, my stepdad and my little sisters were, like, with me, mm-hmm. and we were watching the news. He comes down the escalator, Donald Trump, yeah. first thing he says, Mexicans are rapists and drug dealers. Mm-hmm. And I thought two things. The first thing I thought was, like, this man is going to be the Republican nominee. I didn't think he would be the president, but I thought that he would at least get the Republican nomination because I had heard that my entire life. And I'm like, he is speaking to a lot of people right now, people who are explicitly racist, where I'm from, but also a lot of people that would wish they could have said that out loud and, you know, mm-hmm. never had the courage or whatever. So it made me think about that, but then also, like, it was also just, like, really devastating to see, like, my dad, who was there, who's worked his entire life, who really raised, like, four kids that weren't his own. He's, like, a hard worker, like, the most devoted person who's contributed so much to his country, to have him, like, have to hear that from someone who's running for president. Um, and then trying to explain that to my little sisters, like, mm-hmm. I don't know what to say. You know, it was just, like, I was really astounded. But I remember first thing I did, you know, so I went to, like, this really liberal law school. Mm-hmm. And first thing I did was went on Facebook and to see, like, what my classmates were saying about it, like, anticipated they would also be outraged. And I remember it was, like, silence, one, or the people who did say anything about it, because I immediately posted about it. I was very hurt, very angry. And white feminists from my law school would comment, oh, this is a joke, you know, it's not serious, like, this isn't, like, a really a big deal. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know how hurt I was over all of that? And I'm mm-hmm. like, man, like, you know, I thought we all, like, believed in, like, social justice. I thought that's why we were all here, and, like, now, like, my feelings are being dismissed. So I wasn't surprised by the outcome. Mm-hmm. If anything, it was just, like, the whole thing was just really traumatic. It was, like, reliving, like, where I grew up. Um, 
And like the response now has also been just disappointing because I thought, wow, like I thought this country would come to a reckoning. I thought white women would come to a reckoning after the election. And then see what happened in Virginia. It was like, no, it was like once again, people of color who like carried it. Right. They wore a pink fuzzy hat after the election and they thought that was helpful. Turning to Nikichi, I just want to say, one, I'm so glad you're joining us. You're so gangster. <laughs> and two, I can't help but look at you and and not think of the Nina Simone quote, you've got to learn to leave the table when love's no longer being served. Mm. I think in so many ways you embody that. So in terms of talking about how particularly uh, how white people, white women in particular, love to claim sisterhood when they are the victims, but then they want to pretend that we are not there when we are the victims. They want to disappear and ignore us. Can you tell us a little bit about how you've had to navigate that space or how you've dealt with it? Or just talk to us about anything at all, because I just love hearing you speak. Okay. Terry, it's just phenomenal being here with you. But, you know, I grew up during the 60s and the 70s. I grew up during the era of, I would say, the black power era because that's what moved and grooved me. That's what attracted me. But it was also during the time when women's liberation mm-hmm. was coming to um, um, the fore. But my analysis was that um, when I was born, uh, I could have been born either a male or a female, but I definitely was going to be born black. <laughs> so race was always primary for me and to me, and everything that I have seen and witnessed and been involved with have uh, has borne that um, out. And it didn't surprise me about the uh, election and I don't about think it surprised who to anyone um, did the right. you know voting and who voted and for who. And the reason why it didn't surprise me is because I analyzed back in history and. The white family stuck together. The white woman stuck by the white man during the enslavement yes. uh, period. In fact, it's even deeper than that. And, you know, uh, while the white man was tipping off to the uh, uh, back slave right. uh, cabins, you know, the white women held this resentment mm-hmm. towards black women. You, that's not talked about very much. You don't hear much right. about that. But that stuff really carries on and carries on down generationally, I believe I, um, uh, you know, I feel. So when we talk about intersectionality and issues along um, those lines, we really must keep foremost the issue of white supremacy, which is what uh, this conversation is centered around. And until we deal with that aspect in terms of whiteness as a unit, okay, um uh, I, I don't know if we'll be able to un, really seriously unpack, you know, the um, the rest of it. You know, I just can't forget the um, false claims of rape. Mm. Right. I agree. The constant false claims of rape because the child came out the wrong color. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Well, many times they were. I don't even know if I call them consensual relationships because I'm because you know, power, right. power dynamic. Right. You know, you know, uh, can, you know, come with me, butch, into the bedroom. I mean, you know, where my muscles away. I mean, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying. But um, always we bear the brunt, uh, you know, of it and. We need to really reconcile and, and, and reckon that. You know, I could spout the words and the terms and, you know, women's liberation and, you know, down for the cause and feminism and womanism and all of that. 
But bottom line, we can never, ever, ever forget the relationship and role and impact that race has on all of us. I agree. And please, if you're on the phone and you'd like to join in and have a conversation with us or ask a question, please press 1 and we will bring you in and we'll address that. We'll, we'll address whatever you have to say. And I so agree with you, Nikichi. I was actually raised with the reverse, right? And I think part of that is my immigrant background. So I was raised, as I often say, I was raised to be a feminist first and a race warrior second. And part of that, I really think, derives from the fact that I come from a country that's run by people who look like me. Mm-hmm. So even though it is a third world country and even though the United States decided that it needed to flex its little military might on Grenada because we have nutmeg and rum, I'm going to put that aside for now. I'm going to put inside the imperialism and just focus on the white supremacy. But I think, for me, it was a real reckoning um, to reject the feminist movement, as I explicitly did over November, after November 8th, in part because my mother ran the first Grenada's women's death. So I was really steeped in the second sex and feminism, and there's nothing a man could do that you cannot. However, I also recognize that those who claim to be my ally are necessarily not because they choose to be vested in white supremacy over any concept of sisterhood, right? So I completely agree with you when you say that we have to come to reckoning with white supremacy. I go back to thinking about how Skip Gates said that the election of that man marked the end of the second reconstruction. If we count it from the 60s with the civil rights acts that were passed and the pinnacle we reached was with the election of Barack Obama, that was the end of the second reconstruction. And I've been wrestling with that, and I think there's something to be said for that. But even as we have to come to reckon with white supremacy, we have to still remember that white supremacy knows no gender, just like patriarchy knows no gender, right? We still have to reckon with the fact that we have to deal with two different battles. Those who are constantly the victim, or at least they like to play the victim when we're around, and I tend to think of that as the feminist, and, or the women. And then we have the men who just have no problem oppressing us in all different kinds of ways. So in terms of dealing with white supremacy, dealing with feminism, dealing with all of these different racist tropes that they put on us because it reconfirms their ability that they're better than us, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about how has white supremacy impacted you on an individual level. Like, for example, Zora Neale Hurston says if you're silent about your pain, they'll kill you and say you enjoyed it. I can think of multiple ways in which I had to navigate and confront white supremacy to continue on my life and my career path. And I think that you all have also. So can you talk a little bit about that? Um, and I'll start with you. Well, Maritza, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it's okay. Um, I guess, like, the first example... No, go ahead. Mm-hmm. The first example would be like um, I, I discussed this a little bit, just a little bit before the show. But when I think about like my educational trajectory, like mm-hmm. I've always like been like such a nerd. I always really loved school, and I just think about like where I grew up, and my teachers were always all white, and like I was at the top of my class in high school, and like not once did I have like one teacher like ever talk to me about college or going to the university because like the expectation was that oh, like, all the Mexican kids, like, get married and have babies. You know, like, that was literally the expectation and, and how frustrating that was. And I remember, like, I, my senior year, I applied to, like, all the scholarships, more scholarships than anybody else in my school. And it was, like, a high school secretary 
who like noticed that I was turning in the most applications. And she's like, oh, so where are you going to go to college? And I was like, oh, you know, I guess I'm going to go to community college. Like I literally didn't know any better. I didn't even know. I didn't know what I was doing. I just kind of knew that the white kids I was taking honors classes with were going to college. So I was like, oh, I guess I'm going to go to college too. But my mom says I have to like stay in town to help her. So like, you know, yeah. I, you know, so I didn't know any better. And she like slipped like, you know, the University of Nevada like application to me. She's like, oh, well, you should apply to the university. Like it's more rigorous and this is a free application. It's four hours from here. So your mom won't be too upset. You should apply. But then, you know, now I think about how life-changing that was. Like, going to university allowed me to be politically active for the first time I met other Democrats, which was huge. Like, you know, like, I also, like, met other, like, people of color. And, like, I just think about how significant that was. And, like, if that had happened, I wouldn't have had an awakening. And I wouldn't have, like, I wouldn't be here right now. And I get angry, though, when I think about it because I'm like, where would I have been if, like, if I had known about this world, right? If, like, people had, like, higher expectations for me. Like, my parents didn't know any better either. Like, I also mm-hmm. come from an immigrant background. Like, my parents are, like, grade school educated. Mm-hmm. So for them, like, they're like, oh, just graduate high school, don't have a baby, you know? So, like, that was already, like, big time for them, <laughs> right? Yeah, so I don't know. So I just feel like if I had had – and that's something I really value. Like, yes, I had, like, a lot of, like, other things happen. But for me, like, I just think about, like – I almost feel like I was robbed mm-hmm. of, like, true opportunity because, like, white supremacy, like, because people didn't see, like, didn't, they lowered the bar, like, they didn't see, like, higher expectations for me. There was, like, a diminished view of what you could be and who you could be and what you could accomplish in the world. Definitely. The soft bigotry of low expectations. Exactly, yeah, no, and, you know, I'm happy where I ended up, like, obviously things worked out, it's fine, but, like, I think about, like, so many other kids who just, like, didn't have the break that I had. Like, my brothers, my sisters who are about my age, they're brilliant. I would say, like, they're smarter than I am. But they just never had, like, anyone who encouraged them. Like, I feel like I just got so lucky. Mm-hmm. That's so beautiful. So you're also gifted. So yes. Yeah, so you're not there, too, though. And that's I understand what you're way. saying. Right, yeah. Right. yeah. But, you see, today we're not going to allow the idea that you can't be fly without saying that someone else's fly, too, is not going to stand. You can just mm-hmm. own your flyness. And anything other than that is the process of decolonization that we're going to go through, right? Amen. Do I just that fly? Your future is so bright, we're going to get you some new shades. And I'm inspired by you, Maritza. I mean, oh, I'm telling you. you, you know. I know I met you when you, you became the recipient, well, before that time, of a Souls Justice Fellowship, right. and you've just spiraled upward ever since. Oh, oh thank you. Phenomenal woman. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And it's so beautiful to see phenomenal women talk to phenomenal women. Right. <laughs> That's what we're all about here on Revolutionary Sisters of Diaspora. And, again, I'd like to remind all of our listeners that if you would like to call in, please press 1. The number is um, coming to me in one moment, but in the meantime... 619-924-0980. Press 1 if you'd like to come in and talk to any one of us. Um, And in the meantime, I'd like to turn it over to our sister, Nikichi, for her to share a little bit about how she's had to deal with white supremacy on a personal level. Yeah, well, I would just start out by saying that I don't know... um, what background I come from because of white supremacy. Um, my ancestors, after they were kidnapped and separated from families and culture and language and mm-hmm. everything else, um, were stripped of their identity, of their names, of everything. And I really honestly 
can't go beyond my um, my grandparents in terms of heritage and background as a, a result. And the way I personally navigated that store, mm-hmm. shall we say, of white supremacy, of which I became um, very knowledgeable of at a very early age, um, I decided in self-determining fashion to adopt an African name. And I met your name. I met the woman who has your name. Not the one that you were talking about earlier. Who? No. No, no, the Nikichi. The other Nikichi. Oh, the other Nikichi. Yes. We went to the Yes. I know the other Nikichi. Her mother. me. Yes. Yes. We worked together on a project. Yes. But, you know, it's interesting with these names, because you were talking about Rachel Dalchow uh, earlier. I don't know if you yeah. called it. She told your name. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Said, excuse me, baby. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. I mean, excuse me. Do you even know who I am? I mean, I'm just saying. Anyway, that's a lot of But, um, so, you know, the name, um, clothes, um, I kept my hair natural mm-hmm. forever, I guess. Yes. You could say, but all of those were... Um, conscious efforts to um, um, rally against white supremacy, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to be a lawyer because I wanted to uh, be in a position to be able to uh, deal with some of the issues and community issues and um, nationwide issues that disproportionately impact um, black people in particular and people of color in uh, general. And by way of that, women, Black women, women of color, you know what I'm saying? It's all part of it. So I don't want to give the impression that all I deal with is race. I just look primarily through the prism of race. I mean, I remember growing up, I mean, I, to this day, I don't know what, <laughs> I remember growing up that people in my family were saying that, you know, the man is supposed to make all of the decisions and the man, this man, man that, this is like early 60s. And I'll say, excuse me, I said, you know, I mean, this is like, yeah. what if they're wrong? What if I have a little bit more information? Well, it doesn't matter. You're supposed to supplement yourself. So maybe that might be the reason why um, throughout the several different marriages that I've had, I'll probably maintain my own name. Mm-hmm. I never adopted the name of, um, you know, my husband because I just felt this self-affirming, self-determining identity of me. And while I share my life with someone, I, I just it just felt like a layer of um, sublimating me, I guess mm-hmm. you could say. So I, I kind of personally dealt with the issue of right supremacy and gender and all like that uh, in those fashions, and I've kind of been consistent mm-hmm. <laughs> throughout my life with it. That is so groovy. As you were talking and you were sharing, Marita, you were sharing your story about how to deal with the bigotry of low expectations, and Nikichi was discussing how, I like to say, particularly as a black woman, my very existence is an act of rebellion, right? And so I think that you manifest that in so many ways. The way that you move through the world is really an act of rebellion and an act against white supremacy. And I I personally have come to start thinking about how since I and to be honest, I actually can take it back to the fifth grade, but um I I, I can because it just hit me in my head. I've constantly gone through dynamics where 
white men have more so than women. I mean, the women, yes, but they have their issues, and I can't deal with Becky right now. Um, but white men have constantly come to play in my brain, extract my ideas for their own benefit, and then disappear and act as if they thought about it on their own. Mm-hmm. I think about the fact that in the fifth grade, I was the president of the computer club. Don't ask why, right? But I was. And then the teacher had to put up a sign, and I told them, and he was concerned about whether or not it was going to be equal. And I said, well, to be honest, who's really looking up there and paying attention? But that insight led to him changing it, and he told my mother, but he didn't really give me credit. But more importantly, the one that really struck me was when I was in college, one of my best friends was a gay white male. And he told me that I was intimidating because of the way that I spoke. Not my Brooklyn accent, right? That that was not a part of it. But it was the way in which I communicated, the vocabulary which I used, the way that my flow flowed. I was, he literally said that I was talking on a level that most people couldn't understand and that I had to bring it down to a simpler level so that people could flow with me. And I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, no, people are But I realized that, no, the problem was never me. He was intimidated by the fact that he grew up in racist white South, and he met this black woman from Brooklyn who wore kicks and had Vaseline always because you never know, but (laughs) still was quite comfortable having long-winded discussions on Nietzsche and bringing up ideas and concepts that he wasn't coming to reckon with. So as opposed to him reaching for more, he had to bring me down for less so that he felt comfortable in reasserting his mental place in a social hierarchy, right? And so I can see how neither he nor I at the time recognized that we were playing out dynamics that go back for centuries. Mm -hmm. And you brought me back to that place because that is so true. I've really come to recognize the fact that in so many ways our actions go back generations and we don't realize the dramas that we were playing out have existed long before us and in many ways will exist long after us because we cannot dismantle white supremacy in one generation, and that's fine. However, we can do the work right now, and we can do what so many of us in this room have done, which, as our sister Shirley Chisholm said, if they don't give you a seat at a table, bring a folding chair. Right? And I I am proud of our Caribbean sister who was like, you know what, somebody has to run for president first, so why not me? She did. I'm I'm bought on Boston. I have the T-shirt to match. (laughs) So not wanting to just have this be pure catharsis and venting about the fact that we have to deal with white supremacy, I also want us to talk a little bit about, okay, we have this. We recognize that it's there. What are we going to do moving forward? Personally, a lot of what I think is we have to get local and we have to protect ourselves. But looking at it from a multifaceted perspective, looking at it as a generational conflict, what do we have to say to our sisters right now who are dealing with the chafing, dehumanizing behaviors that go on both in their personal life and in the workplace because they can see what's happening they recognize that they're dealing with white supremacy. They are dealing with microaggressions, but they have no avenue. They have no place to kind of go and say, please, I'm not crazy. What do you suggest that we do for them? You have younger people who are going through this. Your sisters are struggling. You've known people who are going through this now. So can we speak to that a little bit? I mean, I always think about that. But I think what's different now than from when we all grew up is social media. Mm -hmm. I think that really has 
made such an impact on the lives of, like, young women of color who are coming up. Because I remember, like, growing up in, like, rural Nevada, I was like, felt really isolated. Like, oh, my God, I'm the only one going through, like, all of this, you know? Like, and I didn't feel like there were people, like, who really, like, got it. But then, you know, then I got exposed to, like, university to, like, different people, like, that sort of thing. But I think, like, social media has really, like, educated a lot of people because our formal education system does a disservice to a lot of people because we don't really learn our histories or the history of white supremacy in this country. Um, But I think, like, you know, things that we find online are a really good tool to do that. Um, For example, I know Latinos are really good about using the Internet on their cell phone. Like, Mm -hmm. we're, like, the, like, demographic who does that the most. So I think about, like, if I want to reach my community, like, I know that, like, Facebook is, like, a good way to do that, you know, and it really does work, and, like, you really, like, can influence people like that, because a lot of people, especially, like, people who don't live in cities, people who haven't got the degrees that we have, like, they just don't find this information, like, they just don't know that they're part of a whole system. It's so interesting that you mentioned social media, because on one hand, social media has been a unifying force, right? It has shown people that they're different images, it has counteracted the narrative. The, the public narrative that starts with a place of white males being the normative standard and everything else is less there. But it is also given a platform and a force for the contrary to go out. So people are dealing with the navigating both good and bad information and treating all information in a kind of blase way. So how are the, so you talk about going to social media. How are you ensuring that the information that's going out to your community is actually the accurate information that counteracts the narratives that they're bombarded with on a daily basis? I mean, that's a really good question. I feel like I think that's still something that we're – I mean, the way I look at it is, like, I know – We have a call. Oh, finish, and then we have a call. Oh, Woo-hoo. Uh, <laughs> the way I look at it is, like, I know – I'm an influencer, so I'm very careful with my words mm-hmm. and, like, very careful, like, with what I cite and, like, how I frame things. Um, but I, I don't know. I just feel like, I feel like that is a challenge with social media. It's, like, how do you decipher what's real and what's not? I think, like, if it's, like, I don't engage in, like, social media fights or anything like that. Not anymore. I just, like, block. Right. You know? But um, I don't know. I feel like put the information out there let people decipher for themselves. I think a lot of people have just haven't been exposed to, like, racial justice thinking, but they're open to it. Great, thank you. And we're going to take our caller. Caller, you are on the line. This is Q. And your question, please. Hang on. Oh, hold on a second. We're coming to you. Caller with the 646 area code, you're on the air. What's your name and where are you calling from? 646 or 626? It's 626, as a matter of fact. Thank you. She only had glasses on. <laughs> <laughs> She's sitting right here with glasses. That means nothing. Listen. <laughs> Listen, I'm, I'm, I have my glasses on, too. I can't see. I love this. Listen, I'm from, the, I'm from the South, and I try to do things right. So when you say that's it, that is not okay. Okay. Thank you, Hi. And hi, Nikichi. This is Essie on the phone. I'm calling from California. Essie. How are you doing? I didn't, I didn't even realize. Oh yeah, so I'm just uh, I'm so delighted with this conversation because I had this on my calendar and didn't even remember what the subject was. So I started listening while I'm moving around the kitchen. I said, Oh, let me just stay on the line. This is really good. So here's my. Um, I'm not even sure it's a question. It's really. Let me try to express it clearly. It's a concern. 
Um, and I'm it, I'm recognizing something for myself right now that I hadn't really addressed. Every time I hear the term banology of white supremacy, it was really unsettling in my spirit. And I'm walking around the kitchen saying, why? This is really bothering me. So I had to just pause and just say, okay, wait a minute. What is What really is white supremacy? White supre- the reason that I recognize it's troubling to me is because very often I hear that term spoken as though it is a truth and a fact. White supremacy is a concept and a perception. It's not a reality because supremacy mm. means superiority. Supremacy means dominion. Mm. Supremacy means mastery, control, authority, ascendancy, and on and on. That's not a reality for me. These people who have operated for centuries as though they are superior, it's only they really are not superior to us. And unfortunately, I love it. they've been indoctrinated to believe that, and our folk for centuries have been indoctrinated to believe they're superior. But it's not, and that's why it was bothering me. So I just wanted to share that. That's a personal thing I had to get resolved for me. Nikichi, Does I'm, that make any I'm sense? I'm really glad, Esty. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, girl. I'm really glad that you brought that up because I've always had an issue with the term white supremacy, and it primarily is because the more you say something, the more mm. it's emphasized, the more it's in the, in the media, in the mainstream, the more That's it becomes right. a reality, it becomes ingrained in people's mm. minds. I just kind of wish That's there right. was another type of um, a term or something along those lines because it just reinforces the myth. I guess you can, you know, or what right. we're trying to destroy, you know, that that concept. Exactly. Maybe white world domination. I mean, I don't know, well, we need but, um, yeah. Okay, go ahead, Inge. So a, a couple things I want to pick up on. Thank you, Essie, so much for calling in. That, that really uh, put a lot of things in perspective because I think a lot of us um, hear the term and, you know, whether we're black, white, Asian, Latino, and, and for some people it is it is problematic, and it is because it's become such the norm, and it is because white people, white men, white women have been over centuries taught that they are better than us, right? And black and brown people, Asian people, red people have always been dominated by them. And so I think that to really grapple with the language is huge, and I think you broke it down just beautifully. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to address, uh, particularly with Maritza, is, you know, Maritza, the other day I was on Facebook and I saw her post something, and I don't remember what it was, but you did the hashtag Black Lives Matter. And, like, Maritza's a Latina, mm-hmm. you know, and she's, like, posting Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. To me, that is just huge because what has happened in this country is the powers that be have pitted black and brown people against each other mm-hmm. and black yes. and Asian people against each other and black and red people against each other. Like we're all against each other because they know the power that we have. If we were all to come together and really recognize and reckon with our individual histories and how they intersect, there would be no such thing as this white supremacy, this um, – this 45 that's in, that's in the in in office because we knowing your own history is huge. Knowing someone else's history just brings us even closer together. You know, my parents, grandparents, immigrants from Honduras, Central America. 
huge, right? People look at me, I'm black, and I am. But they don't realize I know the history of another land, right? I know the history of being black here in America. I know the history of being, you know, having Honduran uh, parents and, and grandparents. And I know, you know, Mexican culture. I know all these cultures. And I know I posted something on my Facebook page from Dolores Huerta. And um, she is a hero of mine, you know. She is. She's a. She was out there fighting for the rights of migrant workers when no one cared anything about migrant workers. Her and, and Chavez, of course, but. But the patriarchy has this quote Chavez first, and that right, is the problem. Exactly, and so and so Chavez is is out there, but black people don't all know that that happened. That that was a real thing. And I think a lot of people who come to this country don't always recognize the struggles that black people have been through and what, what we've come through. And I think for us to come together and learn about the different cultures is huge. So what you do, Maritza, is, I think, amazing and huge. And I just wanted to recognize that. And Essie, thank you so much for calling in because i got to go back and listen to what you said now because it was deep. i got to write that deep. down. <laughs> I love well, it. Well, thank, thank you for taking my call. No, thank please. You. Thank you for calling in. No, and I love it because I, I I understand how unsettling the term white supremacy is because on its face it's individualized, right? But we need some term to talk about its structural and institutional impacts because when I say white supremacy, for me it's never about the personal. It's about the institutional and the structural, Right. And so I would love when we think about talking about a term to describe that which they created to be oppressive. Somehow it, it denotes the fact that it's really, in some ways it is about the personal, but really I could care if you like me or not. What I care is the fact that the court systems treat me as hostile, that the police officers presume that the color of my skin is an indication of criminality, when in fact we commit crime at lower rates than, you know, our unmelanated family, if we want to call them that, <laughs> right? So that's one thing. The other thing that I love that you raise, Ange, is you made me think of Bell Hooks and her terming the phrase white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, right? Mm -hmm. Because that, in fact, is what you are driving at, right? Like, not to mention somebody who's outside of our ilk, but it reminds me of the way that he no, never mind, I'm going to leave him out of it. But it makes me think about how capitalism is all about making sure that those who have less, those who actually do the labor that produces the wealth, we keep them at odds with each other, right? Yeah. Like, so white supremacy grew out of a capitalist framework, <laughs> so that way we had poor white people thinking that even the least of us is still better than any other right. demographic because yeah. our whiteness is supreme, supreme right? even though we're all, well, not all, but there's a lot of mediocrity involved within <laughs> the realm of whiteness that they inhabit, right? Well, and that's exactly part of the issue. So we had the, the you know, the white women mm -hmm. that elected him, but we also had him continuing to throw red meat to his base, right. including acting as if he gave a damn okay. about the well, poor whites. Right. Yeah. Could care less about poor no. people. No. Right. And we could see and that in the tax bill. Their own, right? in, in, their own interest. Right. You know. And they yeah. continue to vote against their own interests. Right. Like I, I've, I've often said that the election of that man was 
you know, white people saying that the least of us is still better than the best of you. Mm -hmm. Because part of me always feels like putting up Obama and his family was black America saying we are giving you the best that we have to offer. Mm -hmm. This is our version of perfection. We may not agree with everything you do, but you cannot doubt our moral compass and where we're working. We are going to find the best people that we can to do whatever it is we do. And then you do that, and we have an almost flawless administration putting aside some of my issues around Gitmo and the other life. But that's okay. I'm going to put that aside for now because at least they knew how to read, write, and speak. (laughs) As we go from having the most educated couple inhabiting the White House to someone Mm. Yeah. Bad words. Right. Bad name. That's part of the bleep. Right. But bleep words. Right. <laughs> Someone who grabs anatomy. Right. Grabs people by the cofefe if that's what we want to say, right? So great. So you know, someone who grabs people by the cofefe, right? And so, as I often say, the world is hostile and toxic right now. Right, Like there's no other way to describe it. The world is hostile and toxic. We cannot even have the widow, a gold star family, grieve. And we honor their grief Mm -hmm. because they are black. Mm -hmm. And as far as this administration is concerned, their blackness does not equate to real grief. They're still functioning from a place where we're not fully human, right? So the world is hostile. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. So can I, um, we've got 15 minutes left. And I want to, can we get back to talking about solutions moving forward? Yes. Kind of what we do? Yeah, well, one of the things I wanted to say, this is just very basic, but this radio show is um, one clear example. You know, Revolutionary Sisters of the Diaspora, you know, uniting, bringing together, you know, communing, conversing amongst ourselves, you know, sisterhood um, uh, uh, sessions of social gatherings, um, um, book clubs that focus on, uh, you know, positive books or books that uplift um, uh, you know, our identities, you know, shall we say, all of these are mentorships, you know, things I didn't have when I was coming up, yeah. you know, mentorships that um, help with uh, opportunities, something that combats the whole thing of, you know, when I grew up, you, the whole mantra was you got to be better, mm-hmm. you got to be better than others in order to yeah. get, get to first base, you know, that's why I had to be a lawyer, because you have to be better, that's you know right. what I'm saying? And, you know, we should not have to be. We should be able to be us, be ourselves. We're whole people. We are. Yes. If we're whole people, then it doesn't matter, right? My wholeness is not contingent on the fact that I have worked twice as hard for half as much. I should be allowed to be mediocre. I should be allowed to not do anything. I should be allowed to make those choices that other people are allowed to make without it being a symbol of my entire race, Right. Go ahead. I'm just thinking about, like, solutions. And, like, I get so angry when I think about it because I think the solution really is, like, white women need to be out there doing the work. Like, white people need to be out there talking to other white people about this. I hate it, like, when they come to us about yes, this. Yes, I'm like, yes, why? Yes, we already yes. know. Like, you're like, yes. you're venting over. Go talk go to your family. communities. That's what yes. Malcolm said. Yes. Talk, 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 yes. yes. Like, we're good. At, at we're your good. dinner tables we're with, with your relatives yes. there. You know what I'm saying? You know, this just happened just the other day. Like, yes. a new friend I made out here, you know, I'm very reluctant to, like, let 
white people in my life, especially because of all the things I've been in, in uh-huh. like, you've been through, right? But I met this person and I thought was, like, a safe space, like, a social justice space, you know, and after a while, I got to know this person and literally dropped a bomb on me, like, three months into the friendship. Oh, you know, my mom's a Trump supporter. And I was, like, flabbergasted. I'm like, you never talked to your mom about that? She's like, no, it's uncomfortable. I'm like, Marissa, you have to have an uncomfortable say, conversation. It's, it's really, I have <laughs> heard so many right? white people that I work with right. know in the work world yes. who are social justice people, who are conscious, working through, for the disadvantages that you said, and their family members around the Thanksgiving table. I mean, I'm just a child. I really right. wonder, does this delve down to... The everyday acquaintances and right. family But that's ties. Fun. I don't like, get it. And it's happened to me more than once. It wasn't just yeah. this person. It's happened to yeah. me more than once. And I'm yeah. like, why do you think I'm the right person and want to tell that to? And, like, second, yeah. like, why aren't you doing something mm-hmm. about it? Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like they're just so passive. Like, well, at least I'm good. Like, my family voted for mm-hmm. Trump, but I'm good. I'm like, that's not enough. Right. You have to be uncomfortable in those situations. Like, you have a lot more privilege than I do, and I make myself uncomfortable every day having these discussions with we people. We are right. uncomfortable every day. Right. Every day, we, as, as black, brown people, we are walking around. We have to be, we are putting situations where we are uncomfortable, where we have to constantly question, you know, I'm going to walk into the store. Are they going to think that I'm putting yep. something in my bag? I'm going to walk into this restaurant. Are they going to think that, you know, I don't have enough money to pay? I'm going to, you know, walk into this place. You know, it's a constant barrage of being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Yes, comfortable in my own skin. I'm a proud black woman walking the streets. But every day I'm I'm put in an uncomfortable situation where I have to think about everything going on around me and how people are interacting and reacting to me and then determine whether or not, was that a racist thing that they just did? Was that a sexist thing that they just did? Constantly, we are uncomfortable. Constantly, mm. double consciousness is real. Right. Right. We have to. Um, one of my girls said that I have a PhD. I got a P. I did 15 years, so I got a PhD in Upper Caucasia, and I took one. For the team, so I'm done. Right? <laughs> like I am. So, I took one for the team. I studied it, but isn't that in part what we have to do? We have to study whiteness in order to survive a hostile world. Yeah. That is our obligation. Other, I, I, fine, whatever. We have to study whiteness, but they. Well, I well no, know. when I, I so. yeah, I when hear you. you. That's what we study yeah. in school. I mean, because I, we we already we have no choice. Yeah, I right? don't exactly. study that. Yeah, yeah. Well, so but the I know thing about is it. is about being you know influencers within our sphere right. and actually choosing to be and to choosing to dig in and tackle. And and remember, I definitely understand what you're saying. Like you don't have any influence over her family, but right. she yeah. does. However. Right. You know, I was I, I wish I had pulled up the Facebook post about the one woman who had who had won in New Jersey, the black woman oh, yeah. who, who won that seat in New Jersey. She decided that she was gonna do something about it. Mm-hmm. And then she she went out there and she got the support and there's all these kind of stories that surfaced over this past election. <coughs> the election season is still kinda of going on. Mm-hmm. But for, for all these these state races where people actually are waking up and are reaching out and are broadening their level of influence, and any of us can. No, and I think that's beautiful because I often tell people, yes, 2018 matters and 2020 matters, but you know what? We got a census coming up, Mm -hmm. and that's when redistricting is going to happen in 2022, and that's all going to be determined by the state houses. So if we don't get local 
And if we don't start working towards taking over our steakhouses, then things are going to be even worse. Because those which have power are not going to concede it. They're going to get into all kinds of machinations in order to keep it going. But solution-oriented. Things that I do is, for one, I've made a conscious effort to surround myself with gangster, beautiful, intelligent, grounded women of color like I'm surrounded with right now because you guys affirm for me on a daily basis that, no, I'm not crazy. Gangster T-shirt. Just That's right. No, we don't. Yeah, no, I got you. We, we know a person. Hashtag gangster for life. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is I have personally decided that my home is my sanctuary and my home is going to pay homage to the genius that is black people with an emphasis on black women. So everything you see when you turn around affirms that image. Everything, the posters on the wall, the books on my shelves, the way that I decorate it all affirms the genius that is denied to us. The other thing for people who live around the DMV, that's the District, Maryland, Virginia area, we have to recognize that we have two meccas in the district now. We have Howard and we have the Blacksonian, the African American History and Culture Museum. I call it the Blacksonian. <laughs> <laughs> and I lived there for a long time. I mean, to the point where people thought that I was an usher or whatever. <laughs> 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 Oh my God, we got to get Lonnie down here because I bet you he doesn't understand that picture like you do. People are like, where do I go? I'm like, the Robert Smalls exhibit is around the corner and up the hill. Like, it's there. Don't worry. Robert Smalls in here. They have several. I mean, so that is something else that we have to do. And then now, um, one last thing I'd like to say really quickly is don't forget to indulge in self care. Self care is not merely an act of self indulgence, it is an act of political warfare. Wow. Sister Lord, and you have to. In a hostile, toxic world, make sure that you take space and time to take care of yourself and however you choose to do so, because no one else is going to take care of you first but you. And so I would like to thank Maritza and Nikichi for joining us, and I'd like you to um, each close out with some last words before I turn it over to Trina and Ange. And again, this is Q, the lovable, huggable, angry black woman, and the revolution may not be televised, but it will be live streamed. Maritza. Awkward. Okay. Sorry. No, I don't know. Um, so I like that we end on self-care. I think that's really important. My self-care is actually very similar to yours when you were talking about, like, your house and how you like to, like, you know, have, like, powerful images. Like, like literally all the media I consume, like, all the books I read, like, you know, everything around me, like, I try to keep it, like, people of color oriented and try to share that with, like, my little sisters, too, because I think that's so important because I think that... So, like, we forget that if we just, like, buy into, like, what mainstream society tries to teach us. Mm -hmm. And for me, that is self-care because it is, like, empowering to see those images, you know. I only support movies that are, like, POC, you know, like, stuff like that. I just think it's so important. We have to get out of a sunken place, I know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and I just want to say that we need to be um, affirming, just like we've been throughout this show. That's very important. It's very, very critical. We also need to know our history and our various histories that are part of our various um, identities. I love the women that you quoted all throughout this program. Uh, Carrie, um, I was listening to the radio this morning, and I heard a voice that I, I thought it was the person I thought it was, but I didn't remember actually hearing her voice a whole lot, and that was the voice of Fannie Lou Hamer. Ah. 
lady, this awesome woman, we talk about politics and voting, mm-hmm. and, you know, we talk about a, a woman who just, she just put her foot down. That's right. She okay? was sick and tired and sick and tired and took it to the Democratic con- Convention and said, if y'all not going to give me a seat, I'm going to be my chair. She was the embodiment, you know, of that. So, um, we just need to know our sheroes and um, pass it on down yep. to future yep. generations. Okay. So this is Trina. And, you know, this past year has been such a whirlwind and such an emo- emotional roller coaster. And for me, part of what I have decided is basically a three-pronged strategy. Mm-hmm. The first is to stay woke. There's a lot of people who just have shut out news because they don't want to hear it. It's too depressing. It's too overwhelming. What can you do about it anyway? You know, it's, the system is broken. Well, that's what they're counting on. They're counting on us to continue to disengage. As, and as you can see, the forces of racism and negativity are, are becoming louder and louder. So we cannot afford to hide under the covers. The second thing is to nurture nurture and nourish myself with friends, family, loved ones, and just to really relish life and to really just dig in and enjoy living and play and 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 feed myself the positivity because it's not coming from elsewhere. So I have made it my intentional effort to actually take care of myself even more because I, I feel like last year during the, as the election season was winding up, I was feeling myself getting towed under mm-hmm. the whole thing because it was also the back end of all the um, barrage of killings and everything. But being able to take care of myself and recognize that there are good people that I love that are in my life that I get to be with mm-hmm. and actually taking the time to be with them. And last is just deciding to do something. Yeah. And and being here with you all, us actually, we didn't just bring a folding table. We created the table. That's right. So. <laughs> I chopped down the tree. <laughs> so it's I, it's a it's a great honor and a pleasure, and it always feeds me to be in this space. So thank you all for sharing this space with us. And Ange. So to close us out, um, thank you, uh, Nikichi and Maritza, for participating in this discussion today. You know, uh, Q came up with this title, and we said, okay, here we go. (laughs) And um, I think you guys did just a wonderful job. Mm -hmm. And um, as as all our conversations are, we just bounce off of each other so well. And we really thank our listeners, and thank you, Essie, so much for, um, you know, giving your comments. We really appreciate that. So I guess for me, self-care, one of the things I do want to say is, is Q, you talk about surrounding yourself with, you know, positive images. as you know, my husband and I, we moved into a new house this year, and that was like a whirlwind. <laughs> um, but we are, our basement is slowly becoming the, the area where we have posters up of different people. And, you know, um, our Barack Obama poster is yeah. up. So anyone who comes in, whether you're in a Barack Obama support or not, it's going to be right there. And it will tell you if you're not, you know. <laughs> If you're not doing the right thing, you mm-hmm. won't want to come back into our house, and that's fine because we don't need negative energy. Um, so that's one thing. Um, for self-care for me, 
you know, it's just it's been really, really crazy, really busy. I think uh, I've been really getting more involved in reading because I've had a little bit more time and it's quieter. I'm not in the city and um, spending time with my husband and we talk the politics all the time. He's always calling me with the breaking news. Uh, <laughs> so, I, so I hear it. We and we have our, our discussions about that. So um, that is, I guess, part of my self-care is just having conversations with him and, and having someone to just release with in mm-hmm. terms of all of the craziness. Like we can just say, can you believe that BS? But, you know, mm-hmm. We don't say BS. We really curse. Um, I didn't want to do it on the show. But, uh, yeah, so so releasing that way because not having anyone to talk to or having someone who you're living with and they're not really feeling what you're going through, it, mm-hmm. it's just got to be hard. So um, with that, I'm going to close us out by saying our show in December, we're actually going to do a replay of the show we did in January because we were just so – uh, saddened that our lovely Michelle Obama was leaving the White House, and so we had a show January 19th called Masterfully Michelle, Reflections on Eight Years of Our Flotus, and we are going to replay that in December. We're going to take a little break, and we're going to come back refreshed and rejuvenated and ready to continue to fight the good fight. Uh, January 18th, our next show, we don't have a title for it yet, but stay tuned. We will have one soon because we're going to do a little bit of a powwow and figure out where we're going next year. But we will be back January 18th. Uh, the show January 19th, I mean, sorry, the show that we had January 19th, we will play uh, for our December, our third Thursday December show, Masterfully Michelle, Reflections on Eight Years of Our Floatus. So thank you all again for listening. We appreciate you and we will see you next year. Happy holidays, everybody. Happy holidays. And please don't forget the struggle is real. Amen. The struggle continues. That's right. The struggle continues. The struggle is real, but success is beautiful, and all of you are successful in your own way. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.